We made it literally one day into the championship series, and we already have Clayton Kershaw giving up a home run to a left-handed hitting relief pitcher. Alex, it's a shame that we don't do this podcast every day because there would be enough to talk about with the way that these series have been going. I know you didn't get to see the game. Tell the people why you were not able to watch NLCS game one. Clayton Kershaw have a meltdown. (laughs) Uh, I was witnessing the spectacle that is A Star is Born featuring (laughs) uh, the one and only Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper. A wonderful flick. If you haven't seen it, flick. highly recommend. It was it was very enjoyable, but um, uh, that may have been the first place I wanted to be. But the second place I wanted to be was watching Twitter have a meltdown as Clayton Kershaw gave up a home run to a relief pitcher. Because wow, man, wow! People really were having a meltdown. I went back and I was reading Slack because I had didn't I happened to not be watching at the exact moment that it happened and. Everyone's like 40 different people were like, wow, what the fuck is going on? Yeah. I got out of the movie. I was like, I'm not going to miss much. I'm, I'm going to miss like maybe half the game. Like it'll be fine. And I got out and I had like three or four texts from different people texting me. Clayton Kershaw just gave up a home run. And I'm like, oh my God. I think I texted you Kershaw. Dot, 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 dot. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> uh. um, yeah. So you missed a spectacle, but you saw an arguably better spectacle. Uh, we could be a movie podcast now if you want. You could just review A Star is Born. What do you think of Bradley's Oscar performance? <laughs> it was really good, man. And uh, and he got up there, he played the guitar, he sung some songs, didn't know he had pipes, but uh, but he belted it. And yeah, I heard it he was, was pretty uh, good. It was really, he actually was pretty good. You know, the, the film surpassed my expectations, not going to lie. It looked like a pretty cheesy rom-com. And then I got out of there and I was like... Phew. it's going to weigh on me for a while. All right. Okay. No more movies. We're not a movie podcast. We're not one of those like uh, sit around and chat about the things we did in the past week podcast. We are a baseball (laughs) podcast. We are tipping pitches and we thank you for tuning in to a second podcast of the week. Some of you who are subscribed will know we released an episode on Friday. We're recording again on Saturday because um, Alex did a great interview with lawyer and fan graphs writer Cheryl Ring. And they talked about labor negotiations, just the idea of players' rights in baseball, that kind of thing. And it was a great interview, so we're going to hear that in a little while. I was not able to join in on the interview because there's a thunderstorm in California, which apparently um, shuts the entire grid down. So I did not have internet, but Alex was nice (laughs) enough to carry out the interview for the both of us. So we are going to get to that later. But before we do, we wanted to make a quick mention of the news that came out yesterday that Jose Reyes was the Mets nomination in the NL East for the Marvin Miller Man of the Year Award, which is, according to the tweet from Newsday Mets beat reporter Tim Healy, um, it's an MLBPA honor 
with players voting for who they quote most respect based on his leadership on the field and in the community. And then um, athletic writer Lindsay Adler was tweeting later that some of the uh, reasons that that players gave for nominating Reyes was his move to the bench and his influence on young players like Michael Conforto and Ahmed Rosario. So we all know how tipping pitches feels about Jose Reyes and him being on the Mets and him continuing to be put on a pedestal by that franchise. Um, And we talk pretty often about domestic violence allegations. Um, We just talked about Addison Russell not that long ago. So we felt that it would not be appropriate for us to let this go unmentioned. But you and I were talking before we started recording and agreed there's not a ton to say here other than that baseball just repeatedly finds ways to let us down. The players, the owners, the coaches, everyone. Yeah, and I think that it's something that Michael Bauman put really well in a tweet that you retweeted from the Tipping Pitches account where he basically said that, you know, that this shows that even if the league wants to move the needle on how they deal with um, issues of domestic violence at all, it really doesn't matter because the players' views on this have not changed. And it it makes me think of something else that happened this past week when uh, there was a Cleveland Indians fan who was heckling Roberto Osuna when the two teams were facing off the Indians against the Astros. Uh, There was an Indians fan who was heckling Osuna about his um, domestic violence uh, allegations. And Astros reliever Ryan Presley basically confronted that fan and said, you know what, you can come out here, you can taunt us all you want, but you, not that stuff. You have to like basically leave that stuff out. You can't mention that. And it just goes to show that like the players are as willing to turn a blind eye to this whole thing as anyone else is, as the league um, or the general public, anything like that, because it's it's all about the game of baseball at the end of the day, right? Like that's that's what matters to a lot of these people. It's a business, and you can't let anything uh, affect the bottom line or affect the integrity of your product. Um, so certainly not heartening. I think that the most depressing part of that tweet from Bauman and the situation in general is the part where he says that it doesn't matter at all what the league does. I mean, the league is clearly not doing enough as evidenced by that that tweet that you recirculated about recreational drug use suspension being longer than a domestic violence suspension. But the part that's the most depressing is when he says that it doesn't matter if the players' norms haven't changed. And it's clear that they haven't because this is an MLBPA award. And so other baseball players voted for him. So that just makes it abundantly clear. And it made it abundantly clear with the whole Josh Hader situation when the Brewers, a lot of the Brewers players came out in support of him after all of that. And so, yeah, it has to simultaneously change on all three fronts. And by all three fronts, I mean management, players, and fans. And I guess if you want to add a fourth front to that, it'd be media as well. And it's clearly not where it needs to be on any of those fronts. So I really hope that somebody else wins this award of those nominees Um, And maybe that'll be a little silver lining that it was brought to attention and resurfaced and we can talk about this again, because I think that's just as important because the Mets have sort of (sighs) paraded him around on a PR tour since they signed him. And they're like, yo, nostalgia, yo, 2009. Remember when Jose Reyes was good and before the domestic allegations? Let's remember that. Um, And so 
maybe that'll be a silver lining to the situation that he loses in dramatic fashion. And we all talk about how he never should have been nominated and never should have been resigned by the Mets. <laughs> yeah, sounds about right. All right. Well, on that cheery note, we are going to take a quick break. We're going to come back and we're going to hear Alex Baisley's interview with Cheryl Ring. And before we jump into that, just to give a little context about one of the main uh, issues that we discussed on there, we um, I talked with Cheryl and asked her about the federal grand jury probe um, into MLB and their dealings in Latin America uh, involving basically human trafficking and how players are smuggled over here. Uh, it's something that the Dodgers are really caught up in because of the spreadsheet that they kept of all their <laughs> employees, uh, basically labeling them whether they were criminal or not. Next um, level. You, that's next level. <laughs> yeah, it's next level bad. And and that's, Nat, uh, if you if you C plus crime <laughs> committing on the Dodgers part right there. Yeah. Yeah, and if you go and listen to the uh, to our interview, which I hope you do, you will um, get the full context from a lawyer who uh, who also thinks that's very bad. You probably shouldn't do that. Um, so Cheryl has some great writing about that on Fangraphs.com, and uh, and you can get some much uh, greater context for that there as well. So today we have a, uh, a very special guest with us. Um, we have Cheryl Ring, who is the general counsel at a, an organization in Chicago that works around housing rights and economic and social justice rights uh, for underprivileged communities. And uh, she also writes about legal issues for baseball over at Fangraphs, uh, of which there are many. Uh, Cheryl, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. So before we dive into everything, um, can you just give us a brief overview of your legal background outside of baseball and then how you came to uh, marry the two at Fangraphs? Oh, sure. So um, I'm the general counsel at Open Communities. We're a legal aid agency in the Chicago suburbs. We provide legal assistance for people who are experiencing a housing crisis, um, essentially people who can't afford their own attorneys. We provide attorneys at no cost. Um, in terms of my background, I spent several years in private practice. I've always been doing consumer rights. Um, I've always been a civil litigator. Uh, I'm a member, a member of the National Association of Consumer Advocates. But one of the really interesting things that I found is how very often the, the sort of things that you see in litigation end up intersecting with the sort of things that you see uh, either in, in the media with respect to baseball Every, and like you said, everything is, has some kind of legal component, and baseball is no exception. And I was very honored to have the opportunity to join the Fangraph staff earlier this year, and it has been nothing but a blast. I work with some just incredible people. I'm, I'm a contributor there, and I've, I've gotten to work with some really incredible people and who, who know a lot more about baseball than I do. But they, they let me prattle on about legal things, and I certainly have no cause to complain. Uh, in terms of my own experience with that, um, the, the, the really interesting thing is that the firm that I worked at before Open Communities actually had some experience doing that kind of do, doing 
the intersection of sports and civil litigation. So I got some experience that way. But also I've had some interesting opportunities to talk to people who were involved in that over the years. And it's always the kind of thing where you don't necessarily realize just how much of a legal component there is in this sort of thing until it until it happens. So one of the things that I talked about early on was uh, Jeffrey Loria and how Jeffrey Loria ended up getting sued by the city of Miami and the county of Miami-Dade related to the sale of the Marlins. And I wrote this really, really early on. I think it was the second or third piece I wrote for Fangraphs about how um, how the, the city should uh, file a special kind of lawsuit called an accounting. And it's something that you don't necessarily see very often, but it is, especially in something in, in a baseball site, but it, it is something that it, as a civil litigator, you see fairly frequently. And that's exactly what they ended up doing. And it wasn't that I necessarily had any great insight into baseball law so much as baseball follows the same laws as everything else. And you, so in that way, you kind of see a window as a lawyer into how things work behind the curtain in a way that every, really every enterprise has that sort of thing going on behind a curtain to to one extent or another. So it, in some ways, baseball is like every other business. In some ways, it's not. Uh, the antitrust exemption is one example. So it's always a challenge to see what how baseball and baseball teams can come up with ways to get themselves into and out of legal trouble. Right. And I know that um, baseball, just like any other sport, has its component of fans that are just like stick to sports. And when you start digging into a lot of the legal stuff, you start to realize that teams are not necessarily acting um, in the best interest of the players or anything like that. So as you've been kind of writing about this, what has the response been like, both on fan graphs and just kind of in the the wider interwebs? You know, the by and large, the fan graphs commenters have been great. You know, they, they keep me on my toes. They, they're really quick to point out where they where they think I've made a mistake, but they're also really supportive, which I appreciate. The only thing I will say is that um, there are a couple of things that, uh, that I have experienced. Number one, every so often, and I say this to some of my clients, Google's a very bad lawyer. But unfortunately, the it, it does mean that everybody thinks that they are a lawyer sometimes. And so sometimes you have to explain that just because Google says something doesn't mean it actually would work that way. Uh, you, you see that a lot in terms of some of the more complicated issues, things like discrimination issues. We saw that with um, when the Tigers fired Basio earlier this year. Um, but in reality, I, it, most people have been really supportive. The biggest thing that I have experienced, I, I think this is as a woman who is in this field, I have gotten some people, I think, take advantage of that. You know, I think that's something that every woman in this field experiences, both as a female lawyer and as a female writer. And um, I get some blowback that, that men would not receive. And I get unsolicited pictures that men would not receive. And I bring that up only because it's the kind of thing that should be mentioned as something that needs to stop. But by and large, I think people have been very supportive. Yeah. And I'm I'm sure that's something that any woman who's a writer about sports or really anything uh, on the internet is very familiar with, especially if you're on Twitter and have that direct uh, unfettered access with your audience. Yes. Oh, that's, um, that's definitely true. Uh, moving on a little bit to kind of some of your recent writing, the, some of the biggest 
uh, news in the baseball law world over the last few weeks has involved the Los Angeles Dodgers and um, practices in Latin America. And, you know, you're hearing words uh, about a federal grand jury that's investigating baseball and the word corruption is thrown around a lot. And so what I, what I really want to know is, is the entire Dodgers organization about to go to jail? Well, let me start by saying that two things that should be noted. Number one, the mere existence of a grand jury, and this is something I wrote about in the in the first in the, in the first article I wrote about it. The mere existence of a grand jury isn't necessarily something to freak out about. There, there's a saying among lawyers that a grand jury would indict a ham sandwich, and given the way that it's structured, you know. I have no doubt you, you, you give a prosecutor a grand jury and as long as it doesn't become a runaway grand jury, you can pretty much get it to do what you want. So just because you get an indictment doesn't mean anyone's going to prison. And obviously in the criminal justice system, people are presumed innocent until proven otherwise. Now, with all of that being said, what makes this particular investigation, I think, significantly more worrisome to the Dodgers and also to other teams who are watching this is that assuming what the Sports Illustrated report that I cited said was accurate, you have actually written evidence not only of wrongdoing, but of actual knowledge of wrongdoing by people in high places. And that's really not a good thing. I mean, having a, a survey and a database of people rating themselves and others as to the degree of criminality they're involved in is generally a bad idea. And it's one of those things that a, a lawyer doesn't think she has to tell her clients, but evidently I do. If any of your listeners are planning to engage in illegal activity, don't put it on an Excel spreadsheet. That's very good advice. I, I, you know, I, I try to give good advice, and that's probably the <laughs> easiest advice I've ever given. But the problem with, with having all of this, though, in all honesty, when you have emails of, a, of an organization referring to itself as the mafia, and you have it, with a chart that actually says level of egregious behavior and five people are given the worst possible ratings, the question that you always have after that is, so what did you do about it? A lot of this is going to end up depending on what the Dodgers, not only what the Dodgers knew, but what they ended up doing about it. So if it turns out that the Dodgers end up firing all of these people and informing the FBI, then the Dodgers are probably not, uh, the people who work for the Dodgers are probably not in all that much trouble. But if they decided, you know, we would really like to fire you, but we need to finish our, the year's worth of signings first, that's going to be a lot harder to justify and if they fired some people, the staff shakeup is something I wrote about in the piece. If they ended up firing people and kept doing it or fired people for unrelated reasons. And the reason why this is possible is because some of the emails that were cited date from after the staff shakeup. That, that's something that's going to be really problematic. And I, I cited in, the, in my piece an article that was written back in 2014 by a, a pair of lawyers um, named uh, Pete and Mendel. They, they both are, have a first name, David. And th they wrote a really fantastic article about how the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act can play into a, 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 either an NFL team or an MLB team ending up in exactly this scenario. And it's the kind of thing where if I were compliance counsel for a major league team, I would have gone over that article immediately after it came out and gone through everything to make sure I was in compliance. My I's were dotted, my T's were crossed because the FCPA does not have an actual knowledge requirement when it comes to the wrongdoing. So 
to the extent the Dodgers knew something was going on in terms of bribing public officials or illegal payments or something like that, and they did nothing about it or stuck it in a spreadsheet and left it there, then yeah, you could see a lot of people end up facing really serious charges. And what the target of the investigation is remains to be seen. But this is not something where I think it's going to necessarily blow over easily. These are really serious charges getting thrown around, and you don't often see an FCPA grand jury say, you know what, we were wrong and we're walking away. The question also is, what happens with other teams? Because as far as I know, the the Dodgers weren't doing anything that was different from any other team besides putting it all in a spreadsheet. So if this is something where the Dodgers are simply the easiest team to nail to the wall because they kept the best records. If I'm compliance counsel for another major league team, the lesson to learn from this is not keep worse records of your criminal activity. It's maybe we should be more careful about not engaging in this activity in the future. For a long time, and this is something I discussed in the piece also, Human trafficking, especially when it comes to Cuba and Venezuela, um, some the corruption when it comes to the government has been part of the price of doing business in Latin America. Moving forward, this is something where teams are going to have to take a good hard look as to just from a risk benefit analysis, is it worth jail time to potentially land that next top prospect? And it's also really not fair to the players themselves who end up going through really awful situations. Yasiel Puig, Leonis Martin, they were both kidnapped. They both nearly died. Um, They go through really awful situations. Their families are put in jeopardy. And at some point, it's worth wondering whether the teams have better ways to do this or whether they just shouldn't be involved in this at all. Right. And that's something that I think I've been really curious about as all of this has come out, because it's such a large part of baseball's business right now. A lot of the biggest stars in the game right now have come from um, Latin American countries. And I mean, I, if, I call, if I recall correctly, I think they, they cut off ties with Mexico because of corruption there um, a little while ago. But that's also not nearly the market that a place like um, Cuba is. So, yeah, I guess I'm curious, kind of, do you see that perspective shifting on the parts of major league clubs that they don't see um, an incentive to uh, implicate themselves in this? Or is it the kind of thing where there's so much upside uh, on their on their side of things that they're just going to kind of move forward and just be quieter about it? You know, the interesting thing in, in answer to that question is after we saw the penalties that were imposed on the Braves after they got caught, just from MLB, forget any kind of criminal liability, where they lost Kevin Maitan, they lost several of the top prospects in their system. There were some people who thought, well, now we'll see some kind of change, but we really didn't. I'd like to think that the mere presence of the investigation is going to cause some teams to reevaluate their priorities, but I don't think the investigation itself will. I think that my sense is that the, the industry is sort of holding its breath to see what happens. What is the outcome of the investigation? And there's really three ways that this can go. Option A is the grand jury comes back and says, we don't care that you're the Dodgers, we're indicting the whole kit and caboodle. At which point you're going to see, I think, a significant uh, a significant response from Major League Baseball because just the mere fact of getting criminally indicted is going to be a big deal. And there's also the reality that the Dodgers organization as a whole can be indicted as a company. It is possible since the Dodgers are a separate legal entity to indict the team itself. 
as a legal entity. The second possibility is that some, to some degree, some lower level people are involved, maybe a higher level person or two, but not the folks at the very top. And so in that case, I expect the teams will probably continue to do business largely as usual with a few token changes around the edges because they'll be feeling that they dodged a bullet. I think the worst case scenario is one where you have no indictments at all, where the grand jury just declines to issue any indictments, either because they don't think there's enough evidence or because the the prosecutors presenting the evidence to the grand jury weren't able to prove some kind of payment to, to a foreign official. I personally don't think that's going to happen. I think there will be some indictments just from what we've heard so far, but of who and how many we don't know yet. And so I, my sense is that what the response is, is going to largely depend on what the grand jury ends up doing. And we might not know that for several months. Right. Um, shifting gears a little bit towards um, the kind of owner-player dynamic, that's really kind of one of the biggest issues in uh, surrounding like baseball legal matters is labor. And we talk a lot about like minor league wages and that sort of thing. But uh, I'm curious a little bit about um, how owners and organizations at large uh, leverage their branding and their ties to a city in order to sway public opinion in their favor when it comes to matters like building a ballpark or something like contract negotiations, um, where we've gotten to a point where fans sympathize more with owners, the billion-dollar people at the head of the company, as opposed to the players who hold a much lesser status. Um, Do you, I guess, have a sense of how that dynamic plays out and how owners take advantage of a fan base and get them on their side? You know, I'm not a PR expert, but I am a lawyer, which means that I have to you know, put a client in the best possible light. And the thing that jumps out about me is this. Owners tend, with a few exceptions, owners tend to be largely absent in the background. For example, who is the most well-known former NBA owner? I'd say it's Sterling. And I'd say it's Sterling because he got into so much trouble. If an owner is doing things the right way of a professional sports franchise, you generally don't hear about them. Jerry Jones isn't in the news all the time because he does everything exactly the right way. Mark Cuban is known for more of his temper and for Shark Tank than he is for what he does with the Mavericks. So from my perspective, part of this is that the owners tend to let the, the because they have the commissioner who is their elected representative, essentially run the run Major League Baseball, the owners are in this, they have this advantage because they're not necessarily public figures. On the other hand, you have the players who are public figures. And I would submit that the MLBPA has done a very poor job of marketing those players. You, it, everything from who's on the cover of MLB The Show, Ken Griffey Jr., a guy who's already retired when you're in a, and we're in an era where we have the best young talent, arguably, that the game has ever seen. And you have Jose Ramirez, who could be on the cover, Mike Trout, Mookie Betts, Aaron Judge. There are a bunch of players, a bunch of play, young players of color who you could pick, and you're picking Ken Griffey Jr. Another example, we've seen over and over again with the Twitter scandals that various players have. Nobody has bother to check to scrub these Twitter accounts to make sure that there isn't anything embarrassing on them. 
And then on top of that, you have the domestic violence scandals that keep happening over and over again. And the players, in other words, keep landing themselves in hot water. And so you put all of this together and all of a sudden you have a dynamic where the people that you see on your TV every day, if you're a casual fan, they're not the owners, they're the players. And they're the players who you keep hearing about getting into trouble. So when the players turn around and ask for all this money, now you're, you're thinking of the players already in a negative way, even though when you look at things from a more objective eye, the owners don't look so great either. And what I mean by that is if you look at some of the player, not the player, some of the stadium disputes that I've talked about over the course of the season, the Diamondbacks, for example, suing the municipality that is their landlord over repairs to the stadium and essentially threatening to leave the state of Arizona if they don't get a new stadium. I mean, you do see some differences in terms of how teams handle this. The Mariners, for example, are one example and that they are not threatening to leave. They just want certain repairs paid for that are in the original lease. And that, that I think, is a completely different situation than we've seen with some other teams. But some of these, some some of the way that some of these teams have handled their ball, ballparks does have does should and should give people pause. The Rangers they just built the ball the ballpark at Arlington. It's less than twenty years old, and they turn around and they build another one on the taxpayer's dime. And the studies have shown that when you have stadia that are built with taxpayer money, taxpayers never get that money back. So. Jeffrey Loria is just the most egregious example. But in reality, most of these stadium deals are more like Loria's deal in Miami than we'd like to admit. You have a a team that is essentially gifted a stadium. They're hoping to make some kind of money back for the taxpayers from either the concessions, which they usually get a very small portion of they get anything, or luxury box revenue that the teams don't actually sell out. This is a situation where the owners are receiving gifts of billions of dollars and don't do anything with it until 20 years from now where they hold the existence of the team over the head of the local government in order to get a new stadium. I think that because a lot of that goes on behind the scenes and because the players are the ones who are right up in front and center for the casual fan, that's why you see this disparity Even though if you look at it from a more sober eye, you'd say, gee, the owners aren't necessarily behaving all that well either. Right. And especially like uh, this past offseason, there was a lot of hand-wringing about the free agent market and uh, owners trying to depress salaries and talks about players potentially holding out um, or even references to um, the labor stoppage a couple decades ago. And it really seems like fans fall on the side of owners when that kind of thing comes up, right? It's like, okay, just get out there and play. You're already getting millions of dollars. Uh, Why do you need a a few more. And uh, my co-host, Bobby, who's you know not here right now, I think had suggested um, on an episode a while back that maybe salaries should be represented by a percentage of the team's revenue or a percentage of the uh, owner's uh, value um, to show just the disparity here, right? Like how, how little um, players actually make up of the overall costs when it comes to the fact that they are the reason that the, the product exists exists in the first place. It's a good idea in theory. The problem comes in with how you determine how much a team actually brings in in revenue. For example, you know, we, we've had the the ownership through Rob Manfred say that MLB players are getting about half of the half of all revenue. I personally don't think that's correct, but it ends up counting what what it 
it depends on what money you count. And now you have new pools of money between the MLB advanced media money, the new gambling money, now that sports gambling has been legalized, between stadium money, naming rights. There's all, all of these different revenue streams that are different for each team, not just ticket sales. And so the question is, what revenue streams are you counting and what ones are you not? And it's all accounting tricks. I think the MLBPA has done a poor job of holding teams to that. Part of the, the problem that we've seen with that is also that the MLBPA did a poor job, I think, of negotiating the last CBA. They gave a lot of concessions regarding what amounts to a salary cap now with the much stronger luxury taxes. And as a result, you saw teams incentivized essentially to spend less money. It's everything the owners wanted. But the problem is that was a collectively bargained deal and the union wasn't willing to walk away from the, from the table over those concessions. Should they have? I don't know. I wasn't there, but it isn't a good deal for the union. So where, where does that leave you moving forward? Number one is we have to, for the first time, get some kind of clear idea of where of what these teams' revenue streams are and where they're coming from. Because we can't even talk about percentage of salary or percentage of revenue or some kind of salary structure until we know how much revenue the owners are actually bringing in. We know that they're underestimating it. We know that they're understating it for public consumption, but we don't have any good figures. And that's a problem. And the second reason it's a problem is because most of, or all of these teams are in publicly owned or publicly funded stadia and the municipalities don't know how much money that these tenants, because that's what these teams are, they're tenants, that doesn't know how much money these tenants are bringing in. So when it comes time for the team to say, well, I want a new stadium, there's no way of knowing how much the team can actually afford. So I think that municipalities are partly on the hook for this also. The second thing when it comes to salary structure is that we have to look at the role that analytics have played in this. And what I, what I mean by that is this, and even though I'm somebody, I'm a woman who has always believed in the idea of analytics, advanced metrics, sabermetrics, the problem is that there is a human side to the game also. And I'm not talking about when you lay down a sacrifice bunt. I'm talking more about the idea of an opener. And I see that a lot of people are congratulating the Rays on this novel idea of an opener. But all I see when I look at that is a way to depress arbitration salaries. Because if you think about it, if you have a relief pitcher who you're starting a game with only to go through one or two innings, you have a starting pitcher who in arbitration is not going to get a whole lot of money because they don't have any wins, they don't have many innings pitched, and they don't have any strikeouts. And those are the metrics, for better or worse, that starting pitchers are rated on in arbitration. Flip side, you have the long relievers who come in afterwards, guys like Ryan Yarbrough on the, on the race. You, you have guys who are not are going to have the innings pitched, might have some of the wins, but they don't have the game started. So this is a rather cynical play. It might be a cynical take on my part, but I think this is a cynical play. The Rays are trying to keep their own salaries down. And I would argue that that is a, a greater incentive for what some of these teams are doing than is winning the game. Is there some success to the opener? Sure. But at what cost? And are we going, are we okay with a team pushing the boundaries of that to such degree that it is actually hurting its own players earning power in the process? And that's a, a, an issue that I think we need to sincerely address, especially as we move to more towards a positionless era, because as starters and relievers become more interchangeable, as positions become less meaningful with shifts and things like that, you're talking about less lower salaries for players, even as revenues continue to rise. 
Yeah, and it seems like something that the MLB Players Association has been kind of soundly criticized for um, over the just the last few years um, in terms of advocating more for quality of life um, issues at the negotiating table rather than things like um, a higher minimum salary or fixing arbitration rates so that it's not based on um, a stat here or there. So is that kind of the the next frontier as far as labor ne- negotiations go, is actually looking at um, how the, the game is played and how the money can keep up with that? I would argue that all of those, because for take, for example, arbitration. The CBA has a couple of procedural rules about what stats you can use in arbitration. However, it only the, the only rule is that you can use any. Uh, and I was actually talking with, with folks during my um, during my Fangraphs playoff chat during the wild card game. It's this misconception that wins are the uh, an innings pitch are the only stats you can use in arbitration. The the rules actually say if you look at the CBA that you can use any publicly available statistic. You can't use Statcast data, but you can use any publicly available statistic. So if it were me, I'd want to go in there with. FIP, with XFIP, Sierra, I want to go in with a whole bunch of stuff that is publicly available that you can use, that you can find on fan graphs, all of this stuff that would be really great to show how a pitcher actually, how good a pitcher actually is. The problem is that the arbitrators aren't baseball people. They are lawyers like me who sometimes know less about baseball than me and are there because they are professional arbitrators. That's what they do. They hear cases in Major League Baseball and a bunch of other things. So sometimes this you end up, for lack of a better term, dumbing down the proceedings for the audience. And part of the problem also is the arbitrators have to pick one number or another. They can't pick a number in the middle. And I think that definitely has to get changed. But the bigger issue is not necessarily figuring out what positions are okay and changing all of those rules. The bigger issue, I think, is starting at the minor league level. Because when you're a minor leaguer and you're getting paid $1,200 a month, you make it to the big leagues, all of a sudden that check for $500,000 is more money than you've ever seen in your life. And you're a lot more willing to put up with, with, with what you get from the owners given the disparity between what you experience as a minor leaguer and what you experience at the big league level. People are looking for these quality of life guarantees, which makes sense since you have none of them as a minor leaguer. But as a major leaguer, you shouldn't have to ask for those things to take them to take them for granted in lieu of getting paid. And I think that if you were to start this younger with players, if you remember that most of these players are not bonus babies, that they have trouble making ends meet in the minor leagues, I think if you were to start by saying as the MLBPA, we're going to start prioritizing our future members instead of our current members, that's how you're going to get these problems addressed. Because what the MLBPA has to realize is at a certain point, every single one of its current members will no longer be a member and will be replaced by a bunch of people who now have essentially no rights under their own CBA. That's a problem. Because for, as a lawyer, one of the one of the rules that I always tell my clients is you never reach an agreement that your client or whoever follows your client won't be able to agree to, won't be able to comply with. And what the MLBPA is doing is they are creating an agreement that their future members are not going to be able to, they're not going to be able to live with. And that's a problem. 
It's interesting you mention arbitration and the the people who are there to kind of mediate the whole process don't know very much about baseball at all. And so on the on the flip side of that, uh, baseball teams, the ones who have their own bottom line interests at heart, very much all know the ins and outs of this sort of thing. Um, do you have a sense of kind of the role that bigger teams versus small teams take on when it comes to negotiations at the at the labor table. Um, a team like the Tampa Bay Rays, like you said, um, has more of an incentive to kind of pinch pennies here or there, suppress salaries. And the New York Yankees, on the other hand, have a much bigger incentive to stop a labor stoppage altogether because of the sheer value of their franchise. So do you have a sense of kind of how um, that uh, that labor uh, argument kind of plays out on the team side? I, I would have a twofold answer to that. The first, the first is a, sort of a reality check. The least expensive, the cheapest franchise, based on the numbers we have, the cheapest franchise, the one that's worth the least is the Tampa Bay Rays, which doesn't surprise people. It's worth $900 million. Every single team owner is a billionaire. Every single one. So this idea that there are small market teams that can't afford players, I think is a misnomer. And I think it's a dangerous one. Because if you look at the, the numbers we do have, they're, especially with the new local TV deals, they're bringing in hundreds of millions of dollars. I'd argue that every single franchise in the sport can afford to run a $150 million payroll. I've yet to see any numbers that that would contradict me. And that would include teams like the Rays, like the Marlins. There is no excuse for them not to other than they're pinching pennies. So I think part of it is we as fans are letting them off the hook by saying, well, you're a small market team. What does that mean when the owner is a billionaire? And I think that's something that we have to keep in mind. The second thing is the way the CBA negotiations work, you have lawyers on behalf of MLB as a whole, and then the CBA gets submitted to the individual teams. But because the lawyers representing this, the league at the bargaining table represent all of the owners on behalf of the commissioner, essentially there is some idea going in of what the, they're willing and not willing to do. But remember, you are talking about 30 billionaires or groups of billionaires here. So it's not like... The, it, it's rare that you're going to have a group of people who are disagreeing on a major issue because of how much money they have, given you're talking about really, really wealthy people. In fact, the only time you see something like that happen, Peter Angelos, to his credit, has in the past refused to use replacement players. He is a, he's big on it, making sure that teams pay their, their players a fair wage. The problem is that as laudable as those are, the Orioles' insistence on sticking to that has been perceived as a dysfunctional front office. And, as a, and the Orioles this year, despite a $130 million payroll, won 47 games. So the fact that you cannot, with a worker-friendly with a worker-friendly attitude, succeed in the modern game, I think is a problem that needs to be addressed. That is music to our ears here on Tipping Pitches, something that we uh, preach about almost every episode, despite the fact that we, uh, the only thing we can back it up is with our, uh, our moral feelings on the issue. Um, thank you so much for coming on, Cheryl. We know your time is valuable. There is playoff baseball going on as we speak, um, so we're going to let you go. But thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. We really appreciate it. Well, thanks so much for having me. I hope that was helpful. Yeah.
You don't know how little you matter until you're all alone. In the middle of Arkansas, with a little rock left in that glass dick, you used to date a blonde. You used to hit it raw. She was and you are madly involved, madly involved. Okay, so big thanks to Cheryl for coming on and chatting with me, chatting with us. Uh, we really I was there enjoyed in spirit, that. man. Y- you were there in spirit. I referenced you <laughs> once, so uh, that's what counts. I was live right? texting you questions. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, very insightful. Spoke to a lot of stuff that uh, that I think you and I like to kind of rant and rave about, but can never really actually put our finger on because, as m- many of you may know, we're not lawyers. Uh, no. We can only uh, yeah, we can only advocate for minor leaguers so much. Uh, you can find Cheryl and her work over at Fangraphs.com. We will uh, we will link to some of her most recent work in the description, and she is on Twitter as well over at at ring underscore Cheryl. So make sure to go follow her. She is a great resource for some of the more nitty gritty legal stuff surrounding baseball. Please go read all her stuff if you enjoy listening to some of the things that we talked about or that we have talked about in the past about the imbalance of power between owners and players, the way that owners manipulate their place in society and culture. She can speak to a lot of that better than better than we can. I want to say thanks if you've listened to this and you listened to our Friday episode. Um, we thought we would break it up, our, um, break our hiatus with two shorter episodes rather than one 90-minute episode that would have been a, a little more than our listeners could chew. So um, thank you if you've listened. We hope that this was a little nice little change of pace in the middle of the playoff schedule um, and something that might be ever evergreen if you'd rather come back to it after you're done watching the exciting playoffs that we're in the midst of so um we're recording this right now in the middle of nlcs game two so the future of the dodgers could look very differently by the next time we talk alex and i'm excited to see what happens yeah maybe the next time we we chat the brewers will have actually lost a game because it feels like it's been weeks since that's happened i'm rooting for that a lot i'm rooting for the dodgers count me in (laughs) i really don't want the brewers to go to the world series the all criminal team over here. <laughs> fair. Yeah, fair. It's uh it's L's all around. Alright. Um yeah. check us out on Twitter. Check us out on Radio Public. Email us. All the same stuff. You know where to find us. Uh thanks for listening. Yeah, talk to you next week. Crack rock. How feeling girl. Ooh. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Feeling good. <laughs> <laughs>